Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and I signed up for a meet, so I've been waiting for one, and I finally signed up for one in March. So. Oh, I will be on the platform again. Normally, it's this month every year that I do mm. it, but uh, things have been crazy. So I found one, and we're all—I've got at least ten lifters traveling down to Texas to do a meet. So nice, and it we're might be near San Antonio, right okay. outside of San Antonio. And it might be my first single ply meet. Ooh, Never. so that's fun. Yeah. As nice. <clears throat> Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Associate Professor of the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, teacher at Rocky Mountain University, and back still in uh, South Padre here, waiting on the wind. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. Everybody, we've got some news and then listener questions today. We are episode 599 uh, today, so next time is episode 600. Before we hit the record button, we were just sort of discussing what we might do. It's not going to be any kind of major extravaganza, but we'll do something fun. Because 600, damn. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's see what's going on right now. We are starting the fall funds drive. Usually I do this a little bit after Halloween. Um, just and through the holiday season, it tends to be a time where people, you know, when they start to think about giving, well, supporting the show would be one. Uh, every week in the show notes, I thank, uh, you know, four, five, six of the most recent. It's sort of random. If you've never seen your name in the show notes or if you even look, um, it, it's fairly random and say, hey, what about me? Well, happy to put you in there because we're very supportive, right, of those those $4 monthly supporters because that's what keeps us going. It pays the server fees and, and, and. Um, in fact, special thanks to Weldon. Dude, thank you for that donation. I just... Significant donation. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. Freaking awesome. So, in a way, Weldon's kicking off the fall funds drive. So, um, all right, let's get to some of the science news here. Strength and muscle sport news. This first one is sort of uh, relevant. Let me ask you guys do you take vitamin C? Either one of you guys? In my multivitamin. Okay, just in your multi. Yeah. Yeah. I've- I've gone back and forth. I, for quite a while, took higher doses, like 500 to 1,000 grams per day, and then, or 1,000 grams, 1,000 milligrams, <laughs> one gram. It's like, holy crap, never make it out of the bathroom. 
Um, and then I didn't take anything other than what was in my multi and food for a couple of years. And now I just kind of sort of haphazardly take it when I feel a little bit more tired for no apparent reason. Probably more of a psychological effect than anything. Got it. Yeah, I um, I take a vitamin C. I take the lowest dose I can find um, just because – I've read enough that, you know, you have tissue saturation around 200 or 250 milligrams a day. Now, I can see some value to taking more and getting your blood levels temporarily high, right? I mean, it makes sense to me. But so I find I actually have to go online to find the low dose stuff because I'm just a little too concerned that, you know, if I take a lot more than that, it's actually going to backfire on me. I might have pro-oxidative effects. Like I said, it's what, what you're after. Is it an acute, you know, rise in blood levels or whether it's tissue saturation or, or whatever, but um, different different approaches. This is, oh, by the way, and I take that with like the collagen and, you know, stuff like that. Some I slam some bone broth with it and just poor man's joint support, you know. Mm-hmm. Dorian Yates, in fact, uh, used to, as, as I understand it, boatload vitamin C to try to keep his tendons from rupturing and stuff like that. So when you're that strong and jacked, I can see why you might want to try to save your tendons. Um, that's hearsay, but I digress. This study is lower dietary and circulating vitamin C in middle and older age men and women are associated with lower estimated muscle mass. So low vitamin C intake or blood levels, low muscle mass. So I've never seen a relationship like this between vitamin C and muscle mass. Um, this is from very late August of this year, Journal of Nutrition. The first author is Lucy Lewis. So here we go. Vitamin C has physiological relevance to skeletal muscle and may protect it during aging, but few studies have investigated the importance. Uh, We aim to investigate cross-sectional associations of dietary and plasma vitamin C with proxy measures of muscle mass uh, in a large cohort of middle-aged and older individuals. They took data from 13,000 men and women from a European data bank. It looks like 42 to 82 years old. They looked at fat-free mass as a proxy for muscle tissue. And I think a lot of our listeners know, but so fat-free mass is not just muscle mass. There are other things in your body that are fat-free, but it's not a bad proxy, right? When you see fat-free mass go up and down, you can more or less realize you're making gains in some way. Um, They used bioelectrical impedance to measure this, though. So... Uh, you know, not the best technique, but it is more geared toward fat-free mass and body water. So at least yeah. they're they're not using it for body fat here, right? Um, and I get it, right? These huge data banks kind of things, they can't be running DEXA scans on every single individual, uh, typically. So they, they took um, fat-free mass, then they did, made it relative, right, to a person's size, They expressed it as a percentage of total mass, so percent of the body that's fat-free mass, and then they made it relative to their body mass index as well. Uh, From the vitamin C side, they did dietary intakes from seven-day food records and also plasma, you know, blood draws. Results here, positive trends were found across the quintiles. So for those of you who don't look at stats much, you can take a big data set like this and you can split it into five and then, you know, look at the highest intake people and compare it with the lowest intake people, almost like there are two different groups where you had intervened. But this is not an intervention, right? It's just another one of these 
cross-sectional studies. Anyway, positive trends across these quintiles for vitamin C and fat-free mass for both sexes. Uh, Fat-free mass as a percent uh, of the body or fat-free mass as relative to their body mass index were higher in participants with sufficient uh, rather than insufficient plasma vitamin C. So 1.6% and 2% greater in men and 34 to 3.9% in women. So it looks like a, at least quantitatively, a little stronger effect in women. Conclusions, our findings of positive correlations of both dietary and circulating vitamin C with measurements of skeletal muscle mass in middle and older uh, men and women suggest that dietary vitamin C may be useful for reducing age-related muscle loss. So never saw that before. Pretty cool. Just, yeah, vitamin C is not one that I ever really thought about as far as, you know, <laughs> mild anabolic agent, I don't know, mm-hmm. or anti-catabolic maybe. So, Do you think that's kind of matching some of the NSAID data, that it's affecting inflammation on some level that may be preserving muscle mass then? I was thinking along those lines, right? Oxidative stress, yeah. oxidative stress right. and inflammation sort of hand in hand and that kind of thing. Yeah, but, I mean, they're right in saying nobody's ever really looked at this one before. Now, yeah, like I said, there's different strategies. I would have people go look and see what you want to take. My personal strategy has been that 250 milligrams every morning with my joint support stuff because I'm old and my joints are shot. But, um, yeah, there's also, I think, there's arguments to be made for higher intakes uh, if you're trying to, like, jack your blood levels, you know, for a certain period of time. What I was going to say I do is just take some lemons and limes and buy a little handheld squeezer and I'll even sometimes just squeeze that into a smoothie mix or even just take it straight if I feel like I've been low on vitamin C or my diet hasn't been super great for a while. So that's another cheap cheap way you can do it too. Yeah, good call. Even some um, like uh, matcha or vitamin C rich green teas are out there. Uh, which yeah. I think is interesting. I'm, I, I was looking, I get one from Japan because it's just unflavored bottled green tea. It's that Oi Ocha stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You remember? Yeah, you remember. Yeah. Um, and yep. the, the light green, you know, bottle. So I'm like, that's mm-hmm. great. I'm going to get that. It's got like 220% of the daily value of vitamin C, you know. So there you go. Stuff like that. That's a good call. Then you don't have to pop a pill. Yeah, and it's easy. And potatoes are high in vitamin C, too, if people are using them for for starches, you get some other benefits. Nice. Yep. So, yeah, this might help if you're one of the older people. Uh, And like I said, maybe slightly better even for for the ladies. So, pretty Mm. pretty cool. This next one is uh, kind of big, uh, and I highlighted what I could. In fact, I only printed off half a dozen pages out of probably 30. This is a big report from the Institute of Food Technologists, and Mike's familiar with them. Um, Top 10 functional food trends. So this is actually from April of this year, but I haven't talked about it. It says, moving from better for you to what's best for me, consumers are personalizing their approaches to healthy eating. So I thought I would just share some data about how people are looking at supplements and, you know, specialty food products. You know, one thing I think is different, here comes the old fart, right? But all three of us, I think we remember a time where Dietary supplements had such a bad rap, and there are certain people in academia especially, like if any dietary supplement was just looked at like vaguely like a performance-enhancing drug, you know, and they like real negative and even against things like protein and, 
you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but it, everything got such this uh, weird, like, PED stigma and, you know, supplements are they're, – they're not quote-unquote natural. And But listen, we're going to be inventing, and we always have. I mean that's what food technologists do, creating food products, and that's going to happen more and more and more, right? There's vertical farming and hydroponic things and genetically modified, you know, uh, uh, crops. And, oh, yeah, I mean it, it's going to be become increasingly absurd in my opinion to not – think that some your foods are made they're not just grown like listen i like simplicity right but sometimes adding a little protein or fiber to some of my usual foods yeah sounds good to me so anyway it says um general health and wellness products are uh no longer fit all over the past three years consumers have refined a healthy lifestyle or redefined rather so let's see 82% 82% now say that mental and emotional balance is as important as physical health. And there's a reference hmm. here. 40% of consumers closely monitor what they eat. 43% try <laughs> to eat healthy but don't play, pay close attention. And reportedly 9% claim to be on a strict diet. And that's from Data Central 2019. Um, now, relative to our listeners, fit consumers who live a healthy, active lifestyle differentiated by integrating physical exercise three to five days per week. This has now represent 40% of the gen pop. I don't, I wonder about that one, but that's from Sloan and Adams Hutt 2019. They have a reference for it, so it doesn't mean it's a good reference. I'd have to go look, but geez, yeah. Um, Anyway, fit consumers now represent 40%, they say, 109 million Americans are also aged 50 and older, and they are looking for things like low to no sugar, low carb, and no artificial sweeteners. Now, to me, that's a little bit of a conflict. If you're going to have low sugar, you know, it's hard not to have some type of sweetening agent in there. I mean, sure, you don't have to do one of these, like, you know, non-nutritive sweeteners. I'm not saying pump everything full of saccharin and aspartame, but it is weird that they're trying to avoid sugar and carbs, but also sweeteners. It's like, well, okay. But, you know, you'd have to get very clever on making things palatable, I think, as far as complying. I do think you can train your palate away from the sickly sweet. I think we all know that. But um, Only 16% of the fit consumers said plant-based was important. And that's quite different we're going to see from the gen pop. Hmm. Um this is that actually is contradictory to what I've been hearing. I've been hearing a ton of crap, at least Gen Pop. Oh, plant protein, plant protein, yay, plant protein. And I, I think that they are just they need educated, right? That plant proteins kind of suck <laughs> by themselves um, compared to, you know, animal proteins like milk, uh, dairy proteins and egg and, you know, go down the list. Anyway, 17% of the fit consumers considered superfood content important, and 18% said gluten-free was important, according to Mintel 2020. Um, I wish the gluten-free thing would go away, but, you know, all of these different little niche diets, uh, you can't just assume they're going to. Half of those who exercise at least once a week always or usually choose specific foods after exercise. So they're thinking post-workout nutrition, about half. 36% choose specific foods before exercise, according to Health Focus 2019. 
So just giving you some numbers here. More people thinking about post-workout than pre. But, Phil, I know you like the pre-workout stuff, so you can have the energy to yep. to train. Right. I mean. yep. <clears throat> um, hydration, protein, and electrolytes are the most important sports product attributes, according to Mintel. So uh, just a little bit more here. Like I said, it's a big report, but... Marketers of sports nutrition products may need to reformulate protein-based products in order to offer different options for mainstream fit consumers versus competitors uh, who have different nutritional needs. And that's according to Sloan and Adams Hutt in 2019. Well, we, of course, yeah, we know that you train hard, you're going to have different nutritional needs, for goodness sake, I would think. But um, just over half of adults meet the CDC's physical activity guidelines, but only 23% meet the muscle strength goals. Now, that's interesting to me, right? So people are like, hmm. oh, I, I exercise. But of the people who do, uh, less than half meet the muscle and strength goals. So sort of niche market for you guys working with people, I imagine. Uh, building strength is now the third most important reason to exercise after general health and weight management according to Health Focus 2019. So it's there's need and there's interest in strength coaching. I, I think it's what they're saying. Muscle health and muscle tone is the top benefit consumers associate with high-protein intake, uh, cited by 56% of those surveyed from Health Focus 2019. Other benefits associated with high-protein intake were physical energy, weight management, mental energy, and bone health. And I found that last one very interesting because Mike's heard me bitch over the years. Like, protein used to be demonized for hurting bone density. Oh, yeah. And now their consumers are like, no, I want protein for my bones. <clears throat> I think there were some very confused messages from some allied health professionals that did not stay up on the literature. They saw calciuria, right? They saw a little bit of extra calcium in the pee. And they're like, oh, that must have been leached from the bones. Well, as it turned out, you know, Beth Dawson Hughes and there's just different researchers. I think Don Lehman, they're like, no, no, protein probably doesn't hurt your bones. Probably doesn't. Yeah. Um, Stu Phillips has published a bunch on that. Yeah, I imagine. You know, it's just, um, it's a quantum leap, right? It's like, well, then just go to stick someone in a DEXA, which I have. And, you know, the heavy lifters that I put in a DEXA, Jesus Fortress was in the 99.9th percentile for bone density. <laughs> <laughs> Insane. <clears throat> anyway, um, as consumers become more familiar with the ever-widening array of proteins, um, again, this must be gen pop, two-thirds of adults say consuming a complete plant-based protein is important to them. And one in five says it's, the plant protein is very important. Now, again, that's in contrast to what we saw with the fitness people, right, that might be more clued in. And then to this person's um, defense or benefit, this Elizabeth Sloan who wrote this, it says marketers should talk more about the amount and type of protein needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis, uh, including the presence of essential amino acids, specifically leucine. So marketers need to focus on that. And I think that's actually good, right? That's going to educate the gen pop that, listen, that's why your, I don't know, um, soy or peanut protein or whatever, it, it probably is not going to stack up too well. Um, almost done here. In 2019... 30% of men and 24% of women took a protein supplement. So a third, roughly a third of men and a quarter of women are taking a protein supplement. That's very interesting to me. And then lastly, is it, the, there's a section called reconditioning. In 2019, 
heart health fell from the first to the fourth place among health benefits consumers would like to get from food. So I think all three of us sort of, yeah, right. Exactly. We grew up heart health, heart health, heart health. Yeah. Um, and now that's fourth, uh, according to IFIC in 2019. What, what, what is, uh, replacing it? Let's see. Consumers would most like to get from foods would be weight management followed by energy and digestive benefits. And then after that muscle health and strength. So I think that's actually good. I think that's a, a move probably in the right direction. I'm not being anti heart health, right? But, um, these are likely things to happen. Um, weight management, right? Uh, digestive benefits, muscle mass and strength. So it looks like to me that people are moving and this is good news for you two guys. I think that, you know, you guys kind of specialize in mass and strength. And I mean, at least in people who want to do it, um, and consumers seem to be cluing in, especially if they're fitness related people. So well, that's yeah. good. I, I wonder about the, some of the stats in there, but I hope the overall trends are correct. Mm-hmm. Agreed. The number of people that they say are exercising, that's not my understanding right now. That might be self-report. It's like, hey, I ran to the mailbox. I'm an exercise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cardio. Yeah. Cardio, bro. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got one more here, and then we'll go to, go to break, and then we'll get some questions. Sleep apnea and Alzheimer's damage the brain in the same way. This is from Annie Lennon. Uh, Annie Lennon is at Lab Roots. So I'm going to raise an eyebrow at this one, honestly. Not at Annie per se, but what the researchers can actually conclude from this is sort of up in the air to me. So here we go. Sleep apnea is characterized by breathing that repeatedly stops and starts, loud snoring, restless sleep, uh, and then sleepiness throughout the day. For some time, we have known that those with sleep apnea in midlife are more likely to have Alzheimer's later. Now researchers have found neurological evidence for the link. Let's see. They studied 34 post-mortem samples. So Mike, this is your realm. I know you've done a lot Mm -hmm. of fresh cadaver, you know, dissections and stuff. 34 post-mortem samples from people who had obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, While none of the patients had received a dementia diagnosis, 70% 70% had neurofibrillary tangles and 30%, no, 38% had amyloid plaques in their hippocampus. After adjusting factors for age, body mass index, and sex, the researchers noticed that the severity of the condition of the sleep apnea correlated with reductions in the volume, right, the size of the hippocampus, which they point out, I think correctly, is part of the brain that's key for memory. Um, so, Plaques and tangles, though they report, were sufficient to qualify for an Alzheimer's disease. So mm. although they weren't diagnosed, they were, you know, uh, messed up enough <laughs> on a histology level to qualify for Alzheimer's. But now here's my biggest concern. Compared to what? Like, what if all people, regardless of sleep apnea, what percent of they, those people have the neurofibrillary tangles, right? Or have the amyloid plaques, right? That's what I would want to see. Because when they say 70% had these tangles, 38% had the plaques, well, what about people who don't have sleep apnea? What percent of tangles and plaques would they have? Is it almost that high? This is like the thing I've heard about, uh, Mike, you remember a while back that aluminum buildup in the brain, they were concerned that was related to Alzheimer's. And then they're like, oh, no, that happens to everybody. 
you know. Uh, Everyone's at least freaked out about their deodorant. Right, yeah. <laughs> yep, at least as far as I remember. Anyway, it says, um, each person's severity of sleep apnea correlated with how much amyloid plaque they had in their hippocampus. Researchers suggested that repeated bouts of oxygen deprivation from sleep apnea may cause oxidative stress to build up and cause these amyloid plaques in the hippocampus. Oh, and now here. They do come out and say it. Researchers caution that their results come from a relatively small sample size and that their study did not involve a control group. So I'm not sure if you can't make a comparison, right? I mean, if this is just something that happens to everybody you know, this level of tangles and plaque, then why report it at all? I mean, I, th- I feel like you need to make a comparison. That's kind of what science does. You know, it looks for relationships here and they are looking for some relationships. I guess this could be handy for saying, hey, maybe something's here. Somebody go use a control group, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, I bring that up because there's a lot of large mammals right, that listen to us, that deal with sleep apnea. Yeah, and as you mentioned in, in in there already, like Alzheimer's is a weird disease because it is associated with, you know, the amyloid plaque and the tau tangles, but it's not a direct relationship is what most people think, right? It's like most things, if you have these things which are normally going to be diagnosed on an autopsy or some type of dissection post-mortem, then your risk of getting Alzheimer's does go up. But just because you have a whole bunch of them doesn't guarantee that you're going to have Alzheimer's either. So yeah, that's why it gets messy. Yeah, and you know, to me, in some ways, um, my wife was just talking about it's in the news that Al Roker has prostate cancer and things like that. And, but I'm like, well, my first thought is, is it the slow smoldering kind that frankly won't matter much? Or is it you know an aggressive kind that's going to, you know, metastasize and all that kind of thing it's the same thing with this right everybody's eventually going to have oxidative and you know certain amount of tangles and damage i would think just like most men actually end up with some form of prostate cancer if they live long enough but Mm -hmm. if but if those tangles and plaques aren't affecting functioning you know and if that prostate cancer isn't going to um move quickly enough i'm not not saying it's good (laughs) or even something to be ignored but it's less alarming if it wouldn't kill you till you were 130, you know, and something else is going to get you way before. So, yeah, some of this stuff, we have to think about, like, the clinical relevance and, and stuff, too, I guess. So That's it. Um, that's plenty. Let's go to break. And then Phil's got some sweet uh, questions that poured in uh, just last week, I believe. Can't stop feeling. Some of us don't understand how lucky we are to be living in this. Hi, listeners. This is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... 
click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in, $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it Okay, everybody, we're back, and like Lonnie said right before the break, we got a bunch of listener questions. I posted this up the other day, and then uh, they came and they they poured in after the show, so we're going to address them now. So um, I've got one here from Nick Humfield. Uh, This is a question I've had for a while. Answer is theoretical, of course. Thoughts on ATP uncoupling agents as a potential solution to cancerous tumors under close observation. I know that cancer cells require fast nutrition, carbohydrates, and have much higher metabolic activity. So blunting the incoming nutritional speed possibly causing the tumor to be first to starve itself out. Since this would be a nutrition-based question paired with a known ingredient in bodybuilding world, which I'm avoiding mentioning. Hmm. What do you think, Mike? I don't know in terms of risk of cancer. 
I think that's what he's specifically asking, correct? Yes. Yeah, I've. That's outside my area, but I can't imagine it's doing anything good for healthy people <laughs> in that mm-hmm. regard. In terms of so, what he's probably referring to is uh, something called 2,4-dinitrophenyl or DNP. Used to be used as uh, munitions explosive, uh, kind of a cousin of TNT back in the day. Yep. So munitions workers, I think in the 30s, started having all these weird uh, body heat would go up, metabolic rate would go up. Some of them had eyesight issues. And they found that they were getting this exposure actually through the skin. It mm-hmm. can actually go transdermal through the skin. It was used as a weight loss drug for quite a while, many, many years ago. But the side effect is if you take too much, you cook yourself from the inside out. And there's nothing you can do. There's no pharmaceutical agents to reverse the effects. You can get admitted to the hospital. They can, if you took it orally, you know, give you charcoal, get you to throw up, try to get it out of your system, try to keep you as cool as possible or do fancy stuff with uh, trying to cool body temperature. But that's about all they can do. And you know, something called the therapeutic window so how close is the efficacious dose to something called the LD50? So a lethal dose to kill 50% of the population. Uh, with DMP, it's pretty close. So you could, in theory, do it. There's some newer research now looking at it for a whole bunch of different uh, mitochondrial effects um, that might be beneficial. But you're talking about pharmaceutical grade there. You know, very, very careful with the exact dosage. In reality, God knows where you would get it from. I highly doubt the person you're getting from is, one, even really knows what they're doing. Two, is probably even measuring it very accurately. And if you're off a little bit on the dose from what they say it is, it's not not going to be good. And mm. last part, too, is that the downside is you produce just a ton of reactive oxygen species. Uh, which can increase risks for uh, cataracts and a bunch of other diseases. Yeah, I wonder how related that is to the cancer part. Uh, right. Nick, Nick knows a lot of this stuff, I'm sure. But, no, agreed. I mean, uncoupling agents, I mean, this is related to discussions about, like, brown fat, right? And it has more yes. uncoupling proteins. And um, those of you who are familiar with cell metabolism, right, the end pathway, like the culmination of a lot of your carb and fat uh, burning, if you will, pathways is the electron transport chain, and its job is oxygen waits at the end, right? And you you make some water and ATP, and a- ATP is the currency of the cell, and you can use it for synthesizing new things like building muscle tissue or building whatever. So an uncoupling protein, I'm just speculating here, but you would think that it would deny the cell the ATP so the tumor couldn't grow, something like that. I'm totally guessing here because I'm like Mike. This is outside of my wheelhouse, yeah. the whole oncology thing. Um, the problem with DMP, and yeah, I mean, you're right. God, 20 years ago, there were guys in the gym who yep. uh, were on – where they were on DMP. And like you said, Mike, this is not an exact science. They're just swabbing it on their skin, you know, so – and they're getting ready for contests. So they want to get lean. And I heard tales of guys saying, I wake up, my sheets and my pillow are completely soaked with sweat. You know, yeah, um, usually yellow sweat (laughs) and, you know, and they're wasting away though. I mean, yes. Is it burning fat like crazy? Yes. Because all that heat is being wasted, you know, all that energy, that calorie expenditure is gigantic, but then you're also in my mind, you're denying muscle and other organs, other tissues, ATP as well. So you could see the toxicity 
And you're right, Mike. I remember reading old historical reports about dynamite factory workers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And because because it is transdermal, um, it's fascinating. And bodybuilders are certainly willing to guinea pig themselves. I mean, throughout history. So, the, yeah, the cancer connection. I'm not sure, Nick. Um, but and I, and again, I'm I'm guessing you, you're pretty well versed on what an uncoupling agent does. I remember once I even made a little diagram, and when I t- when I teach stuff like the electron transport system in class to try to show like how this gets manipulated, you know, uh, in different ways. So I don't know. Hope that helps. Like, yeah, Mike and I aren't oncologists enough. I just uh, go look at the literature, see what you can find about you know uncoupling agents and. Um, you know, oncogenesis or, you know, whatever <laughs> tumor formation. Yeah. And there was a new study I read the other day that the, some of the pathways like you mentioned, right, are uncoupling proteins potentially via activation of brown adipose tissue. And they used to think that it was a beta three adrenergic receptor that was having some of these effects. And I think a new study the other day I read said it was probably a beta two um, mechanism. <laughs> So that may explain why a lot of the pharmaceutical agents that were beta-3 agonists to try to get this uh, body comp effect and some of the other beneficial metabolic effects generally just didn't pan out. They either had really high toxicity or they just didn't do anything. Um, So I think it's definitely a very interesting area. It's a mechanism that we know exists. It's just how could you potentially exploit it for a positive without having all the current negatives associated with it? Yeah, we could almost do a whole episode just on adrenergics, you know? Yeah. I mean, clenbuterol being so selective to beta 2 that people have to cycle on and off of it because you get receptor downreg and all that. That's, of course, a broad brush here, but European asthma drug. But, yeah, obviously bodybuilders have clued into that here. Clenbuterol yeah. is actually a very weird med in that it would in, – in many ways, it's less cardiotoxic than a nonspecific, like an ephedra kind of thing, you know, uh, cardiovascularly and whatnot. But um, it both makes you ripped and strong. So I can see both bodybuilders and powerlifters interested in that stuff. But – yeah, it's I, my understanding is it's not even approved for asthma in the states. It's more of a European thing. Um, no, never cleared FDA approval because of potential risks of toxicity. Um, if you look at some of the animal studies on it, which again, animals not humans, it, it appears to be relatively toxic. I know other, you know, bodybuilders and other people kind of scoff at that, but their risk profile is generally pretty high. <laughs> You know, I always I, – I was sort of a scoffer at least a long time ago because of, you know, just the, the density of the different adrenaline receptors on the heart, you know, and, yeah. um, and again, and compared to something like uh, ephedra and that kind of thing. Yeah, but you're right. And sometimes I feel like it's like the protein thing we were talking about earlier and just things getting demonized in a lot of ways. Like, well, you know, it's so to- – like it, be- it became in vogue to show how toxic things are. So they, you look at like the morphology of a rat heart and how it changed over time, and you know, but does that is that the same thing as what's going to happen to a person who uses it for six weeks to get ready for a show, you know? Uh, but yeah, how do you even study these sorts of performance enhancing drugs and whatnot, physique drugs, ethically, you know? So it's just yeah, it's really hard to. I'm not saying these things are safe necessarily, but um, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. There's definitely evidence that would lead you to some concern. Yeah. The saving grace is probably that you build up such a, a massive um, 
tolerance to it so fast, which usually to me means that it's probably not doing anything too beneficial that most people tend to use it for very limited amounts of time just because it's not as efficacious. And unfortunately, I know more female athletes that tend to use it sometimes more than males because it's not androgenic either. Yeah. So it's not in the, the steroid era, so you don't have to worry about those types of side effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything that's that receptor-specific, like beta 2, beta 2 all the time, no wonder you downregulate so quickly. People would go two days yeah. on, two days off, or two weeks on, two day, weeks off. I, I saw a rat study. I actually did a paper on this for my, my doc work in an endocrinology class. And I believe it was like a 50% reduction in beta-2 adrenoceptors in just two weeks, right? Because you're just so – it's so brutally targeting one pathway. Your body's like, whoa, whoa, you know, too much of that. Um, But anyway, we're sort of on a tangent already there. Um, But good question, Nick. That's sort of the advanced question, isn't it, with the whole um, uncoupling and all that. So what else do we have? We have. We'll go to a training question next. Um, Nate had asks, "How do you program for a super total?" Um, a super total in my mind being a clean and jerk, snatch, squat, bench, deadlift. Um, I mean, I'll start it out. I mean, the way I would do it, if uh, and I've done it with athletes, if we're not increasing the number of days that they're able to train. Let's say that's static. Like these are just the days I'm able to train. Um, I would add the clean and jerk and the snatch as the as a dynamic move before our strength work. So, as an example, like on squat day, we might add clean and jerk first. So you warm up with your clean and jerk because that's generally going to be the limiting factor is not going to be the squat itself. Um, it's going to be you know, throwing the bar up to your shoulders and technique and everything else. So we'll warm up with clean and jerk and then we'll move to the squat and then whatever assistance work after that. And then same thing on deadlift day. Maybe we snatch first. Um, and then we move to our deadlift. And then, you know, of course, because we're doing overhead work in that now, instead of where powerlifting is all bench, uh, we need some overhead strength. So we're going to add some pressing in and things like that on, uh, on bench day or a separate day for press. There's a lot of my powerlifters. We run four days and we'll have, we'll do a lot of press one day just cause I see press carry over greatly to, uh, to benching, but that's the way I do it. I mean, I just add the dynamic stuff that's snatching clean and jerk prior to our strength work, you know, do the dynamic and the technical work first, then do the big dumb guy work. Just put a bar on your back, stand up, sit down, stand up. So, uh, just seems to work better that way you know it, it, snatch and, and clean and jerk don't go well after you wear yourself out generally so Oof. your technical ability just diminishes greatly so it's not a good idea but uh i don't know what do you think mike i would call you i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i've never programmed that for anyone i've so. programmed some stuff independently obviously but yeah. never together but just on a a theory basis of a principle of how I program stuff. I generally put stuff that's higher priority first and anything that's much more technical first because I don't want a lot of fatigue associated with it. Yeah. Um, the only exception I've ever done with that is some CrossFit athletes where I know they're going to have to do Olympic lifts under fatigue, and that's a completely different animal. Yeah. 
And that's a super advanced thing you would do with them too. It's most people have it inverted where they're doing too much of the oldie stuff under fatigue. So yeah. the only other time I'd change that, like I said, is if I just had somebody that like I have unlimited time to train. Oh yeah, then, who's <laughs> then, there? then uh, along, yeah, then we just have, you know we'd have uh you know maybe we do I've had people do split sessions like okay we're gonna do your clean and jerk snatch in the morning and then we're gonna do your strength work at night. Um, type of thing or you know we can add in separate days where we keep you know you can get a lot of benefit keeping the Olympic lifts low percentage wise and just like work on the move the technique and get stronger you know at the same time with your strength work so um, you know I think people forget especially in this country they forgot for a long time that Olympic weightlifting is still a strength sport and yeah you know the Olympic people here it was all about technique uh and then like we've had uh what's his name um shane hammond on yeah and like came in and like what the biggest thing he said was the difference when he went to the olympic training hall was holy shit the the iranians and the russians like shane was a strong fella he squatted a thousand oh. as a junior <laughs> um he was he's like i was a weakling compared to them you know and you know strength can trump technique at a certain point and it's still literally if you want to win the olympics it's who puts the most weight over their head so it's still a strength sport it's not all technique um so i mean like i said you can find if we just get you technically sound and never go above 80 percent, maybe uh in the olympic lifts and just you know use our strength work for the the strength portion uh, you can get a long ways. So, yeah. and you see that in some Olympic weightlifters. Just and again, this is not my area of expertise, but just watching films and videos and stuff, you can see some lifters who generally are bigger and stronger can kind of save a lift. And yes. other people, exactly. if it's off just a, a half a hair, they're they're done. Yep. Yep. So obviously that comes with its own risks too. But if it's at a competition, then you know it's go time. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So. Um. Saunas. This is from Mike Hedleski. Uh, excuse me if I'm ruining your, your name, but uh, he's typing from an infrared sauna. How do you guys feel about utilizing an infrared sauna to increase hypertrophy benefits or just opinions on overall health impacts of them? Uh, I'm, I can go first. I'm yeah. doing a whole course on physiologic flexibility, right? So how do we target kind of homeostatic regulators in the body so things that your body absolutely has to keep constant and one of them is going to be body core temperature however just like training we have adaptations where we can go in cold water we can go in cold environments uh lonnie and i spent some time in vegas at the ice bar hanging out one night that was pretty fun <laughs> um you can go in hot environments and sauna is a good way to do that so i think there are a fair amount of benefits. <clears throat> Again, if you push me and say, okay, give me reams and reams of research on it, yeah, it's just not something that there's massive amounts of research on it, mostly due to funding and asking questions and that type of thing. But there's some pretty good data on sauna in general for reduction of atrophy. So if people have been injured, there's some very good data showing that it probably helps reduce the amount of muscle mass that's lost. Um, the caveat with that is that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're a healthy individual and you're not trying to limit atrophy and you're training and eating well, that 
going in a sauna is going to be massively anabolic either. I haven't seen any data on that. Um, so I think it's beneficial. There doesn't appear to be any issue doing it post-training. Uh, there's a couple studies, the main one out of Norway, if you get into cold water immersion for 50 degrees or lower for 10 to 15 minutes immediately uh, post kind of hypertrophy work, you may see a slight downtick in that. Again, it's again not, not massive, but possible. Uh, we don't see that with sauna. With sauna heat, you can probably go in right away and not have to worry about any of those effects. In terms of far infrared versus traditional sauna, I don't know. A lot of it, I think, just comes down to practicality. Uh, the far infrared is having more and more data now that's supporting it. Uh, it feels completely different. I don't know if you guys have ever done a far infrared, but to me, it felt like I was a turkey being baked from the inside out. <laughs> it was a it just a bizarre feeling because like I didn't perceive that the temperature was that high, but man, I was sweating like crazy. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. Um, usually the far infrared saunas don't get quite as hot as traditional saunas. So if you're someone who is accommodated to a very high heat tolerance, that may be something to think about. Most of the data so far is on traditional saunas just because they've been around a lot longer, especially in Finnish culture. Um, my bias is I like the more traditional sauna, but I think far infrared can be beneficial. And a lot of times, if that's what you have access to, I think it's going to be uh, better than than nothing. Yeah. Lonnie, well, any thoughts on that? Thoughts? Do you guys use sauna? Uh, I don't use it. I, I got nothing on this. <laughs> <laughs> I, only indirectly, I, I'll, I'll say this. Mike, you and I, we've seen data where they have done massive vasodilatory things to people and it didn't make them more anabolic unless they also had a bunch of, you know, the right hormones and amino acids in their bloodstream, right? I think it was at EB one year, we we're looking at, they were using sodium nitroprusside or something and just way vasodilating. Yeah. If, if the intent is vasodilation yeah. makes you huge, I'm not that excited by that. I have used saunas before. I my, The first gym I ever worked, just basically a, you know, I went from toilet wiper to personal trainer kind of thing there. And I, I would, they had a sauna and I would hit the sauna. Um, but I, I wasn't doing it to get big. I was just doing it, you know. I, I feel like it's just, a, a, especially if you can't do other things for physical reasons or injury, it's a way to apply sort of a, it's sort of a stressor, right? It's a heat stressor and yep. then you sweat and everything like that. But then you feel good about it. You know, it's not. It's not taxing uh, in the long run. It's it's more recuperative, if anything. But I don't think it. You know, if if you're about the vasodilation and whatnot, I'm not that excited by that by itself. Yeah, and in gen population, which is not our our population, there's some data showing cardiovascular benefits. So if you take a gen pop person and put them in a sauna, their heart rate can get relatively high. And that may even quantify as some cardiovascular training for yeah. them. You know, if they're not doing a lot of other training and they're more on the untrained state. Uh, for general health, there's lots of data from a bunch of Finnish cohort studies showing that uh, sauna use is extremely helpful for uh, longevity, mortality, uh, things of that nature. The hard part, too, is differentiating out. Is that a social aspect? Is it a relaxation aspect is that you're spending some time kind of doing some self-care either way most of the data shows that it's beneficial last comment too is just don't get crazy with it because if you 
end up having heat stroke and you don't die from that, if you have an exposure to really high heat that goes too far, for whatever reason, you become extremely sensitive to heat then in the future for quite some time. Um, and I don't understand the exact mechanisms um, of that. But, you know, just go slow and steady. And if it feels like too much, just get out. We'll do one last one. Um there's one that we'll probably have to get to later. It's about just training older populations. It could make a whole show because there's three or four questions on that. But is there any any evidence that lifting can lead to arthritis? Mm. Mm. Uh, let me touch on this just quick. I do not have a reference off the top of my head, but I was looking at uh, – it was an NSCA position paper or something. This was a couple of years ago, so someone correct me if I'm wrong. But um, they were basically saying – know you know the official position or at least there's some evidence that heavy lifting does not cause or lead to osteoarthritis um this is personal just empirical observations on my own behalf that's hard for me to get my head around um, because i know a lot of lifters whose joints are shot (laughs) Mm -hmm. um just wear and tear with age you know and i whether the lifting it depends if you're doing this like in a general healthy way, like let's apply some resistance versus like Phil, like you say, you know, at an elite level, it's not about health, bro. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't think squatting a thousand pounds is healthy per se, you know? Yeah. Um, like was it Ed Cohen says, you've only got so many of those <laughs> in your life. So don't, yeah. don't waste them. So uh, my personal observations, I guess are at odd with the evidence-based what you might read in the literature. Uh, and you could say anything from, well, Lonnie, you're genetically prone. And that's true. My mom has severe yeah. arthritis, um, never diagnosed as rheumatoid, but she has other autoimmune conditions. And so, I mean, that's – and, you know, as you get older too, you have to kind of balance this out. Like, is it worth me still trying to squat? And like, when I was young, I would work up to sets of 405 – you know, for several reps, and I know the powerlifters are laughing at that, but that was a lot for me. And now, but even at that weight, I'm like, why am I doing that, right? If I'm not going to be competitive, you could you can get a lot out of a lighter weight, um, not light weights, but you know, I don't know what your thoughts are, Phil, but you know, two and a quarter, three fifteen, that's a you can do do some pretty vicious stuff with that weight, oh, yeah. weight range. Yeah. Um, so it's, it becomes a balance, and I think you can't – you know, I've seen these powerlifters especially uh, can't let go, and they keep – you know, they're, they're multiple herniated discs, uh, mm-hmm. torn cartilage, all this stuff, and they're just – they're still stepping up to these 800,000-pound squats and stuff. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? You know, you're late 40s, and you could be peaking, I think, in your 40s probably as a powerlifter, mm-hmm. but um, if you're post-competitive, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'll I'll, I'll <clears throat> leave that to you guys. Like I said, I think official in the literature they say no, it doesn't. But my personal observations suggest at an elite level, it probably could, you know contribute somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I can just say, I mean, just from from observations again, uh, being a coach, I can say that most of my people that not only were lifters, but have led very active athletic lifestyles um, throughout their life, tend to have more joint issues and some arthritis going on. 
it's just wear and tear. Um, but I can also say this is that with people with arthritis, it's a dangerous spiral. And generally what happens is they get less active, which exasperates the problem. Now they're just weak and in pain. Um, so I've seen and and like with, with older populations that if we can just strength train them, no matter what, they're going to be in pain, but at least they're not weak and in pain. Right. Um, yeah. So yep. they're able to do more despite the pain of their joints. Uh, so strength training actually helps people with arthritis. Um, cause if not, what you end up, you end up with somebody that ends up immobile because, Oh, it hurts. So I just don't do anything. So then they get weaker and then they don't move even more. And then la 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 la. It's, it's, it's this vicious spiral. So we've, we've been able to combat some of the arthritis stuff with smart training. I'm not saying, right. Yeah. Gonna get you ready for a powerlifting meet. Um, but doing things that we, we try and minimize the volume on the joints and maximize the let's make you a little stronger. Um, and they're able to do more despite the pain because no matter what, they're just always going to be in it. Yeah. So You know, Phil, I, I once taught a medical aspects of X-Phys course, and there were some slides that back you up 100%, that, right? Like people with arthritis, like osteoarthritis, even other forms, right? We're just talking about joint inflammation literally by definition mm. arthroitis right arthritis yep. and that the ones that pushed themselves kind of forced themselves really to do some resistance work were glad they did they had better yeah. outcomes right even though it, it was sort of hurtful and this is why you just need to listen to your body and work with somebody who who's educated on this stuff right or has yeah. experience with this stuff but yeah i think the evidence backs you up Mike, you're the, you're the freaking engineer. What what is it? What, what's happening with joint <laughs> shearing forces or yeah. something? You know? Yeah. I mean, I would say I haven't looked at this literature for a while. When I looked at it before, kind of similar to you guys and Phil, the catch twenty two is if you have someone who all of a sudden has a lot of pain, my first thing is okay, can we get you to do some loaded movement that might be different? That's kind of working a similar pattern. That's hopefully not painful or at very minimal less painful. So if back squatting causes you a lot of pain, can you do a kettlebell front squat? Could you do a goblet squat? Could you do a zercher? You know, could you do some other version to kind of target that motion and get some loading uh, without the amount of pain that you were seeing? A lot of times, if you can do that, just as a trainer, in my experience, you know, 30, 40, 50% of the time over, you know, several months, a lot of the pain goes away. Um, not all the time, uh, but in terms of, what I see in practice, because it's completely anecdotal, I think a lot of it is just how, like, take the squat. Like, how do you actually squat? There's different compensation patterns your body can use. If you're coming up, are you firing your back extensors, your QL, and everything there first instead of your glute max? So now you're probably going to have more load on the low back, that area, than what you should. If you just look at a simple gait analysis, and again, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. A lot of the pain people just lose their mind over this. But in general, I see that if you just make someone's movement more efficient, their pain almost always goes down. That doesn't mean you're going to get rid of it or you're trying to be a physical therapist and eliminate it. But my thought process is if I can just make you move more efficient, that means that the right muscles are probably doing the right job they're supposed to, and we're getting more load on the muscle structure and less on the joints. I just think that if the muscles are not being activated the way that they should or the right pattern or recruitment or rate coding or whatever words you want associated with it, 
the default is going to be more joint stress. So if we can kind of change that, maybe do some, you know, I like using reflexive performance reset or be activated or whatever modality you want to use to try to change those patterns and to get them to move more efficient, I think that's going to be a win. And most of the time their performance goes up also and the amount of pain that they have with movement usually goes down too. That sounds smart to me. You know, just personal observation, I know we're out of time here, but um, my shoulders are grinding over the last couple of years and when I do dumbbell curls, if I just do straight standing like dumbbell or barbell curls, I feel them grinding. But then you can get yourself in a different angle, a different position. You know, I yep. can do concentration curls and not feel it at all. To your point about get the stress on the muscle belly, not on the, you know, your shoulder or elbow in this case, you know. And I just, it, it certainly seems to feel better. And yeah, using pain as a guide makes sense to me. So Yeah. And usually the rate limiter I find with that working with clients is the thought process of getting outside of symmetrically loaded exercises, which obviously have a huge benefit. And if you're going to be a power lifter, that's what you have to do. But most of the people are not going to be a power lifter. It's like you said, Lonnie, what other angle can we hit? Can we do something that's different? A lot of times, even asymmetric. The amount of people I've had who have you know pain doing a deadlift, but as weird as it looks, can do a straddle or a Jefferson deadlift, super high. Interesting. And you look at that and you're like, this makes no sense whatsoever, right? Going to a asymmetric kind of weird looking, you step over the bar and pick it up. But a lot of times that position is just enough different where they can do it without having pain. So great. I'm going to go with that. And obviously we're not going to load it super heavy to start with, but that's a position where they can get weight off the floor. So I'm happy with that. Yeah. You know, one last little tidbit. I'm I'm a huge fan of eccentric lifts, you know, and you can yes. you can get a lot of muscle microtrauma and growth from a bodybuilding or hypertrophy perspective um, without putting giant weights just crushing your joints, you know. So eccentrics, yes, you can do very heavy, but you don't have to. You can use you know uh, slightly lighter weights and just really you know abuse that muscle belly, if you will, in a good way, and not trash your joints in the process. Yeah, and you could make a good argument for the use of machines in this area. If people, you know, can't find a qualified coach or someone to work with or a good physical therapist, a, a machine a lot of times will just limit the amount of movement options you have. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, a lot of times that will change the recruitment pattern your brain has to use to execute the movement. And a lot of times you can get, like you said, Lonnie, more stress on the muscle and less on the joint. And if your goal is just general health, maybe adding some lean body mass, then you can go pretty far just doing that. Yeah, I like that. I mean, if you find the right machine, there are certain machines around the gym. Oh, it yeah. just fits my Big body difference. just right. And I'm like, that one. <laughs> yep. Got it. <laughs> yeah. And if you find those types of machine, like I love the, the, the lever arm hammer strength pull downs in front. Yeah. Like for yeah. whatever reason, that machine to me is just awesome. Other than the handles are way too low. I got to hold on to the friggin' rafter on the top. But you know, some machines, you just do it, and you're like, yep, that feels great. Other machines, you play around with all the angles, you try everything, and you're just like, just doesn't feel good. And normally when I find it doesn't feel good, I'm feeling more joint stress and less muscle stress. All right, I think we're going to call it there. Uh, Phil's got to get, and we've addressed what we could. So good stuff. Everybody tune in next time for, oh, my God, episode 600. <laughs> we'll see you then. See you.
Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.